Today we come to the final phrase in the Apostles' Creed. We've just spent 11 weeks discussing the details of the Creed, and this is the final phrase. I believe in the life everlasting. Uh, this morning, when we were saying the Creed, I accidentally said the life of the world to come. That's that's actually the phrase of the Nicene Creed. And the reason the Nicene Creed has that phrase is it's it's a little bit more um, expanded. It's it's matured, if you will. Uh, when the the Apostles' Creed says the life everlasting, some could interpret that to just be a sort of life that goes on forever in some heavenly, celestial, floating nothingness or whatever. But the Nicene Creed really does articulate it. And that's why today's message is called the life of the world to come, because both of the creeds really do say the same thing. So um, Jason kind of stole my thunder this morning just a little bit when he had you do something at the beginning. So we're going to start off with a thought experiment. Um, we're then going to look at the significance of this doctrine and we're going to take some time to look at what the early church fathers had to say about the life of the world to come. We're going to examine our scripture reading from this morning for from 1 Corinthians 15. And we're also going to look at uh, what that has to say about what we're going to be doing. Um, it, it, it would be nonsense to have a physical body in a non-physical eternality, if that makes sense. So we're going to look at what those specifics about our glorified bodies uh, tell us or indicate about the, the next stage. We're going to look at some of the descriptions of Jesus in the parables that he says concerning the world to come. That is, he gives us hints and, and even clear sayings so that we can know what it will be like. Then finally, we're going to look at the supreme reward that we have to look forward to, not just in the fact that Jesus will come and restore all things, but that he himself will be our treasure. And then finally, we're going to look at what the life of the world to come says about humanity's purpose and how true humanity cannot be lived out until the restoration of all things through Jesus. So, so speaking of this thought experiment, I wanted to, I want you to do this. I want everybody to do it. Um, even if you don't want to be crowd participation, uh, you know, guinea pigs, so to speak, you don't have to uh, raise your hand and you don't have to say anything. In fact, I, you know, don't say anything so as to not affect those around you. But I want you to close your eyes. And for about 15 seconds, we're going to just spend some time imagining heaven. So go ahead and close your eyes now. I'm I'm looking at you if you're not closing your eyes. I'm just kidding. So so imagine heaven and think about what you see, what you will see and what you will hear. Okay, time's up. Open your eyes. No more imagination. Um, so, how many of you saw this kind of stuff? Some clouds? Did anybody see? I'm, now I want hands raised. Clouds? Anybody see clouds? Harps? Anybody see golden harps? Angels? The cherub baby version? If you, you know, with the, the naked baby with the wings on the back? And uh, 
Anybody see any pearly white gates or Peter or anything like that? Okay. So perhaps uh, if you saw some of that, that that is really uh, our society's notion of heaven. This is a very Neoplatonic idea or Neoplatonic inspired idea that heaven is this place filled with clouds and and there's these uh, little babies who are flying around with wings on their back, which the scripture gives no indication that that's the case. Um, in fact, the angels who do show up are often seen as godlike men, as in men that are glorious and radiant and terrifying. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's some notion of pearly gates, but, um, but this is, this is what most people who maybe haven't grown up in the church, maybe who just live in our society, they think about heaven in these terms. Uh, if anybody's seen a Philadelphia cream cheese commercial, this is what they use com commonly. They they literally say that the clouds in heaven are actually Philadelphia cream cheese. It's this kind of floaty, fluffy, white cotton candy version of heaven. Uh, biblically, this is what we see in heaven. In Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel is standing by the river Tabar, and he gets caught up uh, in a vision and in the vision, he sees this, uh, he sees these angels and there's this whirlwind and wherever the spirit moved, that, that is wherever the Holy Spirit would move, the, the whirlwind would follow. And there were these angels with uh, four wings and they were covering their feet while they flew. I mean, it was insane. He sees uh, what many believe is Jesus on the throne and this this vision that he has of Jesus, which corresponds really well to Revelation 1, Jesus is burning on fire. There is an intense hatred, uh, heat that is Jesus himself uh, is in the center of all this activity. And uh, it's a pretty terrifying scene. In fact, Ezekiel is left stunned and unable to speak for seven days. It literally says he was struck dumb and sitting by the sitting literally beside himself on uh, at the river for seven whole days. Isaiah, when he looks into heaven, sees six winged angels. These are a little bit different than Ezekiel's. Uh, this is kind of different than a little baby with tiny white wings flying around. These six winged angels have, have wings to cover and shield their face from the glory that is around the throne. Uh, and in heaven, it's not only filled with fire, but apparently it's also filled with smoke. And uh, Isaiah's got a really, uh, a really tough time dealing with this vision. John the Revelator in Revelation 4 and 5 sees a throne, a sea of glass mixed with fire, thunder. He hears thunder, see, sees lightning, uh, and there's this rainbow surrounding the throne. Then finally, there's these four living creatures that are covered with eyes. That's, I mean, that is a really kind of gross idea. <laughs> they're, they're these creatures that are covered with eyes. That means they have the ability to see it's talking about wisdom. It's a prophetic picture, but nonetheless, uh, the 24 elders casting and throwing down their crowns and shouting glory. This is a very different version of heaven than what we may believe. So I did that not because we're going to talk about heaven, but rather... If our ideas about heaven have become muddled, and rest assured they have be become muddled, perhaps also our ideas, our ideas about the next age, the time period after the judgment of all things at the white throne by Jesus himself, that idea also needs to be reformed. Um, to be sure, Paul says to be absent from the body is to be at home with the, 
Lord. So in one sense, when the believer dies, he or she is immediately in the presence of Jesus. But the New Testament is really not focused about the heavenly state of the believer, although it mentions and guarantees, and by no means should we be unsure about that. But really, the the focus of the restoration of all things is about heaven and earth being united in the person of Jesus Christ and us living in bodies in a real earth, and it's going to be the, the final culmination of all of the redemptive plan of history. Uh, that is, all that God has been doing in the earth has not been just so that you could die and go to heaven after this thing's all over, and then that's it. There really is a restoration of all things. That is, God will have uh, have totally succeeded in restoring the earth to his original desire. And not only his original desire, but his fulfilled desire for us to be uh, image bearers. So there's a significance of this doctrine that the Apostles' Creed uh, teaches. It says in the, in the Creed that there is a life everlasting or an eternal life, and that this life is a life that is going to happen in a world to come. That is, uh, the, wor- the word world is the same word, uh, aeon, that is to describe age. Uh, so you can think of it as a time period or a world. Uh, perhaps it's helpful to think of the word a realm. Uh, when you think of a realm, you might think of Tolkien and the realm of the elves. Uh, but, but by realm, we just mean a time and a place. That's, that's why it sounds confusing, world versus age. Age sounds like a time period and world sounds like a place. They're really the same wor- word, um, but they're translated differently because English sometimes gets a little weird. So the life of the world to come is the most helpful and reassuring Christian doctrine. Beyond the idea of entering into heaven, the life of the world to come gives us hope that all of our labors on this earth are not for nothing, but are rather going to be restored and fulfilled. This doctrine empowers one to experience significant hardship and testing and trials in one's life, enduring with patience, knowing that you will receive a reward for the things that you've done in the body. It frees us from greed to live a life of liberality and giving and sacrifice, and it teaches us to store up incorruptible treasures. Those who have heard Christ call to the cross and have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb have hope concerning the next life. And this is not just some sort of idea. This is a reality that is coming. And it is altogether indescribable the joy and the mirth and happiness that await those who have obeyed their master's voice. It is inexplicable, although many men throughout the centuries have tried to do so. The life of the world to come is possibly uh, a significantly neglected doctrine, yet it is a very significant doctrine. And it fuels uh, the radical nature or the radical attributes of a believer. That is, when Christ tells you to take up your cross and to deny yourself, he says to do so for the reward. Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, for the reward that was set before him. And so we're not Zen Buddhists in the Christian religion. We do not believe that uh, we deny ourselves because 
we should. We don't believe that we deny ourselves because God tells us to alone. God tells us to deny ourselves, but he always connects it to a reward. This is the pattern of all of Jesus's uh, teaching in the Gospels, as well as Paul's admonitions time and time again. Galatians 6, 9, do not, uh, do not grow weary in doing good for we will reap a reward. Over and over again, the New Testament says to deny yourself for a reward. It does not say to deny yourself because getting rid of your personal things is a step towards, uh, you know, uh, nirvana or something like this. This is not at all the Christian religion. And so although we hear this all the time, we spend very little thought and very little attention to thinking about the next life. That is what comes after. So, uh, it's helpful from time to time to examine what the church fathers have said concerning certain doctrines. The reason is that we come to the scripture and we hear scriptures in our lives and we, we hear them in a worldview. And that worldview can often color what we hear and what we see. And so from time to time, it's, it's beneficial to see the worldview of the early church. Justin Martyr, in his writings on the resurrection, describes the life to come and uh, does so in a way that asserts the uh, importance of the corporal reality, that is, the physical reality of the life to come. Many of us, we, we just think of heaven in some spiritual place, but really the age to come is going to be a unification of spiritual and physical, just, just as we have now both bodies and souls. And this is what Justin Martyr highlights. God calls even the body to resurrection and promises it everlasting life. When he promises to save the man, he thereby makes his promise to the flesh. And then he begins to appeal to the nature of man. He says, what is man but a living, uh, but a rational living being composed of soul and body? Is the soul by itself a man? No, it is but the soul of a man. Can the body be called a man? No, it can, it can be called the body of a man. If then neither of these is by itself a man, but that which is composed of the two together is called a man. And if God has called man to life and resurrection, he is not called a part, but the whole, which is the soul and the body. This is very helpful because Justin Martyr was dealing with a number of uh, teachers and philosophers in the school called Gnosticism, which denied that physical things were good. It said Gnosticism was a series of beliefs that said all spiritual things are good and physical world is evil. That is, the physical world has, uh, we've somehow been enslaved and entrapped in these bodies. This is exactly the same paradigm at work in Christian science. Uh, not not a Christian practicing science, but uh, Christian science, the, the religion. They basically believe that somehow we were the souls uh, in the cosmos and we've been trapped in these physical bodies and that will uh, somehow reach enlightenment when we're delivered from our physical containers and then liberated to the realm of the spirit once again. So this doctrine of Gnosticism is alive and well, and we should be prepared to face it. Clement of Rome, uh, arguably the first pope that existed. I know some of us, we get freaked out by pope. What I mean by pope is he was just the bishop of Rome. But uh, 
Clement, in, in one of his letters, uh, said concerning the resurrection, let none of you say that this flesh is not judged and does not rise again. You realize there were some in that time who were saying that the resurrection was merely a spiritual resurrection and not a physical one. So he says, don't, don't let anybody say that. Just think, in what state were you saved? And in what state did you recover your spiritual sight? That is, you were blind and now you can see if not in the flesh. In the same manner as you were called in the flesh, so you shall come in the flesh. If Christ, the Lord who saved us, though he was originally spirit, became flesh and in this state called us, so also we shall receive our reward in the flesh. Let us therefore love one another so that we may all come into the kingdom of God. So the the church fathers said Clearly on this issue, we will have bodies. They will be real bodies, just as Christ has a real body now in his ascended and glorified state. So we also, when he returns, will receive physical bodies. And the reason this is important is because Paul highlights this in 1 Corinthians. We looked last week how he says, I'm going to remind you about the gospel and then goes into a chapter that is arguably the best description of what the resurrection looks like and the best description of our glorified bodies. So it's helpful for us to examine what he says about them and from that to make some inferences about the life of the world to come. In 1 Corinthians 15, 37, he says, And what you sow is not the body that is to, to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. So imagine a grain of wheat. It is literally... Uh, you know, smaller than uh, even the teeniest of our fingernails. Uh, It's very, very tiny. And Paul says that the body that we sow is like the grain of wheat. It's small, it's simple, it's brown. It's not very good for anything at this point. Uh, If you got a bunch of of these grains together, you could make some bread. But this, this seed is only good for one thing. It's good for putting in the ground. But what does that seed become? Consider the height of the stalk of wheat after it's grown and fully matured. Paul says that our bodies now are like this. They're small, they're simple. But when in the resurrection we receive our glorified bodies, they will be many, many times more magnificent. If you think about the stalk of wheat, it's literally hundreds, if not almost a thousand times as tall as that grain of wheat was when it was put into the ground. So he makes this analogy that our bodies that we will receive in the resurrection will be much more significant. They won't be uh, a thing to just throw away or to throw on the ground. In verse 42, he continues and says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What What is sown is perishable, and what is raised is imperishable. So he he teaches today that our bodies currently are all progressing in this room towards a final state of earthly death. That is uh, physical body death. Uh, Jesus said that he who believes in me will not taste death. And that is true. We will not taste a certain type of death. But you and I, we, we looked last week and we discussed how we will face death. And all of us in this room, our bodies over time, uh, once you get past 40 or 50 or 60, it's, start, it's starting to become increasingly clear. I myself, I'm 24, and I've already noticed that I have sometimes crippling pain uh, because I work too long at my keyboard. This is just a fact of life. Our bodies are breaking down. 
And so we live in a state right now of mortality. That is, we all face death and we all will eventually die. Our bodies are currently experiencing decay. But Paul says that what is sown is perishable, but what is harvested, or that is what comes up, is going to be imperishable. So the next age is an age of immortality. That is, we will literally live forever with God. It is not just a uh, state or, or condition, but it will be a ongoing continuing experience. In 1 Corinthians 15, 43, the next verse, he says, it is sown, that is our body now, it is sown in dishonor and it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness and it is raised in power. Our bodies today are sown into the earth in a dishonorable state. Consider a long-term illness that strikes a friend, relative, maybe even yourself. Over the time of that person's remaining life, that illness continues to wear down and break down that person's body. Uh, one of the most tragic diseases to be uh, diagnosed with, in my opinion, although they're all, all fatal diseases are terrible, and, and Jesus will destroy them all finally at the resurrection. But one of the most terrible diseases that I can imagine being diagnosed with would be multiple sclerosis. It literally is a, a continuing debilitation of your brain's ability to control one's body. And so this is a terrible illness. And Paul says that this, this is why Paul says that the body that's sown into the ground through death is sown in dishonor. It's not an honorable thing to an image of God to, uh, to succumb to death. But all of this will be done away with in the unfolding of the victory of Jesus. And in the next age, we will have a body that is literally worn in glory. That is, the body is a, a, a temple or a, or a container that can experience glory. Uh, you can't have a, a glorious vessel if that vessel isn't real. Um, imagine, for example, uh, the story of the emperor's new clothes. We're all familiar with this story, I, I would take it. Uh, the idea is the emperor is told that these clothing, that this clothing that uh, these seamstress and, and tailors are giving him, this clothing is a really awesome, wonderful, glorious thing. But it's in, in the reality, the emperor was just too stupid because he ha was told that those who are intelligent and wise could see the clothing. And so the emperor parades around in this so-called clothing that is glorious and magnificent, but really it's not there at all. So it is with an idea of a Gnostic view of the next age. If we were just kind of these spirits floating around a cloud-filled heaven, uh, it would not at all be the desire of the full image of God that is a rational living being. So we'll have a body that's uh, able to contain glory, and it's glorious, that is, it's respectable. And in this life, we sow it in weakness, but it's raised in power. Our bodies right now are relatively weak. Some of us in this room can possibly dunk. Most of us can't. Uh, we're mostly weak people. I don't know if anybody can dunk. Maybe somebody, maybe Jason Hale might be able to dunk. Nope. Uh, on on the kid, uh, yeah, 
our bodies are weak. We can't lift very much. We can't run very far. Some of, I know a few people have run marathons. They're rare people and they're very intense. Uh, but our bodies are, were limited by just the weakness that, that is we go to sleep every night. We wear out, we get tired. We need to catch our breath. But in the resurrection, in some way, our bodies will be more powerful. Now, I'm not saying we're all going to be Superman and jump over buildings or something like that. But the, the idea is that we won't be limited by the continual need to rest and, and recover because the state of life at this time in the age to come is a state of rest. To be sure, we'll play and have fun and and do exciting things and worship with all our might, but we won't tire like we do now. It won't be debilitating. It will be enabling. So Paul calls these bodies heavenly bodies, but what is that exactly is a heavenly body? Well, in one sense, when we think heavenly body, you might think of the sun or the moon, and he includes that in this chapter, which we won't go into, but it's just done for an analogy. He's not saying as... Uh, some weird religions believe that when you die, you actually become like Jupiter or something like you actually turn into a planetary body. There are religions that have been formulated that take Paul and reappropriate it to new age ideas. And it's terrible. But what he means by a heavenly body, that is, there's an earthly body, which we all have now, and then there's a heavenly body is just pretty much what what is in Revelation 1 and the description of Jesus that is uh, the the glorified state of a human is really um, is really what Paul means. And we won't go into this completely, but by heavenly body, he simply means that we will be dressed for the occasion. In heaven, around the throne, there are people, saints of old and uh, and angels who are worshiping, and those people who are worshiping do so night and day. He literally says that the angels give no rest to their eyes and that they're around the throne night and day and that there is this worship scene going on. And all of those angels, I assure you, are dressed for the occasion. There is no blemish or stain in their character or in their physical frames. And so too in the resurrection, gone will be all forms of being maimed or crippled or incapacitated. Paul says that we will have a body that is real and glorious and ready for the occasion. So uh, Paul wraps up the chapter saying, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your neighbor, your labor is not in vain. Paul says this to indicate to us that the, the coming to knowledge of these doctrines, that is the understanding of the life of the world to come, should produce in us steadfastness and endurance. He says the word therefore, which basically means Paul saying, uh, now that you know this, and now that you know this is awaiting for you, and you don't just die in, and go into the ground, as we mentioned last week, and death doesn't have its final victory, and multiple, multiple sclerosis does not totally destroy your life, but that there is a resurrection from the dead and a life of the world to come in which you will be able to be a true human as God intended you to be. And he says this, and he says, now that you know this, this should produce endurance, faith, and hope. Now, 
He says, therefore, be steadfast. Now that you've heard these things, be immovable. He says, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. And so now we're going to discuss the nature of rewards in the resurrection. Um, <clears throat> in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ instructs us concerning charity and, and liberality of giving. In Matthew 5, or sorry, Matthew 6, 19 through 20, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Uh, surely Christ is admonishing us towards giving of funds to the furthering of the gospel. Many people cite this verse and do so just to say, Jesus says, store it for yourselves treasures in heaven, and that means give money. Give money, give money, give money. You should give money for the furthering of the gospel. That is how people can go to seminary. That's how pastors can have jobs and, and work and, and prepare the gospel and teach the gospel. That is how the church lives, is through the, the giving of tithes and offerings. But this is not the only meaning of what Jesus says in laying up for yourself treasure in heaven. He also is admonishing us towards good works of service. And we know this because in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, he has started with the uh, sayings of blessedness, that is the Beatitudes. In Matthew 5, 11, and 12, he says, Blessed or happy are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What Jesus is saying is that if you encounter uh, those who are um, reviling you and against your message because of the spreading of the gospel, that is, you're preaching or you're, you're encouraging someone or you're going through a Bible study, other people hear about this and hate you because they hate God, then you should, be, you should be considered happy. Why should you be considered happy? Because your reward, your reward is great in heaven. This surely is connected to this idea of laying up treasures in heaven. Good works of service. And uh, the indication here is that Jesus, being a good teacher, he says to rejoice for our reward, <clears throat> not to rejoice in spite of. He doesn't say, give up and lay down your life because that's the right thing to do. He says to do this for what purpose? For our reward. He says that we should be happy that this is taking place because we know that God is glorified. <clears throat> um, the implications of this, that we uh, have a reward in heaven, uh, it indicates some very important things. And... These things that it implicates are, um, are important. This is not mere conjecture, but rather this is also uh, clear teaching that, that Christ lays out for us. Uh, the first thing is that we will have rewards of various kinds. There are going to be different types of rewards, the nature of which I'm not very sure, but rewards have value. That is, they can be treasured. He wouldn't say, lay up your treasure in heaven if you couldn't value something. 
uh, I honor and value my uh, stuff in life and therefore I keep it and I make sure no one steals it. And in some indication, that's my treasure. We do this with relationships. We don't let people dishonor our family members. We protect them and we value them. That's the act, the verb called treasuring. And so Jesus says to treasure or to lay up treasures in heaven. That is the things that are awaiting us in the age to come are things that can be valued. We can take emotional joy in them. So these rewards should also cause joy now. And if they cause joy now, then they will also cause joy then. That is, they will be a source of joy. <clears throat> There's an indication that people will have more or fewer rewards. If you don't spread the gospel, if you don't give a faithful witness of Christ, you won't be mocked and you uh, won't be reviled. And to some indication, God is less glorified if you are silent in your Christian witness. And so there's, there's a differing of rewards. And in some way, these rewards will be ours. This isn't communist heaven. Um, there will probably be very little prohibition on sharing. I just can't imagine that to be the case. But in some way, you will receive a little or you will receive much. That's the parable of the talents. That's 2 Corinthians 5. That's Romans 2. Uh, there will be rendered to your account good or ill based on the deeds that you've done in the body. And so this should cause us, Jesus says, to rejoice. In addition to a world in which things can be enjoyed, there will also be a change in human relationships. Uh, many of you are aware of the, the Sadducees coming to trick Jesus. Uh, we won't go through it completely, but they ask him a question in Matthew 22. And they say, teacher, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring. And now what happens is they go through this ridiculous scenario, purely attempting to trick and confuse Jesus. And they say the second brother married and then the third brother married and so on until the seventh. Now in the resurrection, whose wife shall, will she be for they had all had her. That is, you know, they had all consummated their marriages and in the resurrection, when everyone's brought back to life, how are you going to work this out? Uh, which, which husband does she end up with? And Jesus says <clears throat> to, the, to the Sadducees, the most trained biblical elite of the day, you're wrong because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. He says they totally have missed the point of the resurrection, that there will be uh, no marriage and they uh, won't continue to be married. In today's uh, <clears throat> scriptural uh, or today's religious culture, there are some groups who actually believe and advocate in uh, eternal marriage. And indeed, this makes sense because the marriage vows that are said include the words until death do us part. When one of the persons in the marriage dies, that contract, that covenant is fulfilled. And when you, uh, when, when that spouse of yours or you die, the other person or you is released from your vows and you're able to seek another wife or just to remain unmarried, whatever you choose. But, uh, today there, there's actually a group of people called the Mormon the Mormons, uh, the, the Latter-day Saints, who actually teach in a marriage that lasts for all eternity. And in, a, in asserting the life of the world to come or the age to come or the life everlasting, we're saying that Jesus is right when he says that there's not going to be any marriage. So the people who do this, they're against the teachings of Christ and either make him out to be a liar 
or they have to excuse what he said as not being scriptural. And so there, there's some implications from this. We will be whatever our glorified bodies are like. Jesus says we'll be kind of like the angels in heaven. We'll have a glorious appearance. Marriage won't continue. Uh, there won't be any more children. The number of humans at the time will be cut off and human relationships will be wonderful. Why does this imply that human relationships will be wonderful? Well, because marriage is the most uh, close and meaningful relationship one can have in this life. And if the life of the world to come is better, we know that God would not remove joy from us, but rather that all human relationships will be in some way close like the closeness of a marriage. Now, I'm not saying that you're going to be married to everyone or anything like this. What I'm saying is that the typical problems and lack of love and emotional instabilities that we experience in human relationships, those will be removed and we will be in, in a life and in a world where people get along and friendships are deep and lasting like the friendships of marriage. <clears throat> So beyond everything that we've talked about so far, there is a supreme reward that we all will experience. He says in Matthew 5, 8, uh, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Those who are not idolaters, those who don't have divided hearts will see with their eyes God. They will behold him. Now, we're we're unsure scripturally if this is going to be a vision of God or it's going to be a vision of Jesus in the flesh, glorified state, et cetera, et cetera. We don't have enough time to, to say whether, you know, whether we're seeing the father or the son or, or whatever. Uh, but in some way, Jesus is saying, you're going to behold God. And this beholding of God is a major tenant in multiple religions of the earth. And so therefore we can assume that there is some desire, there's some need for humans to look upon their maker. And Jesus promises this as taking place. In 1 John, the, uh, the epistle uh, includes a description of what this vision will, will be like. In 1 John 3, 1 through 3, John writes, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. As in, there's some uncertainty what exactly it's all going to be like. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. There is a... a a name for this seeing of God that we are promised in the age to come. Some parts of the church call it the beatific vision or the vision of God that enlightens and makes one happy and totally happy. And this idea is meant to communicate assurance to us. The last verse in this passage is, and everyone who thus hopes in him, that is, if you have faith, that you will see God, that you will look with your own eyes upon your maker, then this should translate into purifying yourself now. Have you ever considered this moment or imagined it at all? When we say, I believe in the life of the world to come, we are agreeing with the scriptures. There will be this moment 
where we look upon Christ face to face. And the epistle from John says that if we are purifying ourselves, we really do have this hope. We can be sure that our faith is secure. It's not a vain hope. But beyond all material blessings that have been promised to us, the rewards for our labors, the enduring trials and and temptations, and going through it all, beyond this, we are promised the vision of Christ that we will see God face to faith. Uh, face to face. And this is our supreme reward to look upon the one whom we have believed. Thomas said, I won't believe unless I see him. And Jesus said, happy are those who believe and yet do not see. But there will be a time, Christian, where you see your Lord and Savior with your own eyes. And this is what we mean when when we say we believe in the promise of the age to come. In the recitation of the creed, we begin with God, the father almighty. We go on and discuss the son and what he has come and already done as well as what he is still on his way to do. We discuss the spirit who establishes the church to bring a gospel of repentance and a forgiveness of sins. Having provided a complete summary of all that God has done in redemptive history, the creed mentions the resurrection of the dead and then highlights the thing that is yet remaining. That is, there is an age to come. When we say, I believe in the life of the world to come, we are professing all of this. We stand for a truth concerning the life that God has desired us to live in the world to come as being a life that is not spiritual only. We're not not spirits floating through clouds, but also one that restores the true purpose of humanity to be an image bearer of God and to do with dignity. And all of this was purchased by Christ. He took up a body in his birth. He died in a body in his crucifixion. He rose in a body out of the tomb. He did that in a body like yours, like mine. He ascended in a body and left the earth. He was glorified and reigns now in a body over all of heaven and earth. And he will one day come back to this earth in a body and he will raise you up and give you a new body. And on that day, we will enter into an eternal ongoing meal, a meal, which we have the joy of experiencing a foretaste right now. This meal, we will celebrate him and we will eat and drink in a body. And he offers himself and his body to you those who have faith of the world to come. And these are holy things for a holy people. So as we take communion, uh, I'd like you to be mindful of the fact that in in the age to come, you will eat and you will drink and you will share joy around the table with the master. And that is the meal that we come to take today. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your wonderful, pleasant promises by which we overcome all sin and all temptations of the world. God, we ask you that you would remove from us vain ideas concerning the futility of a spiritual only existence, that you would open our eyes to the wonderful joy of a restored creation, a creation that does not break down bodies that do not decay, but that we
would be living with you forever, that you would be amongst us, that you would be God in the flesh, and that we would see and experience you with our own eyes. Lord, we ask that you would help us purify ourselves, that we would remove and cut off every entanglement that keeps us from a deeper communion with you. Lord, we ask that these theologies that we've examined, these doctrines would produce in us faith and hope that we would know your promises and know them to be sure. God, we ask you that we would uh, have hope concerning the life of the world to come, that we would um, not look around at the world and see only a decaying society, but that we would see a seed that will be transformed at the last trumpet. God, we ask you that you would reform our imaginations and that you would produce in us hope to live and reign with you. In Jesus' name, amen.